Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Marty Barron ran the Washington Post's newsroom for nine years. In that time, Marty clashed with then-President Donald Trump. Also from the campaign trail, Donald Trump is clashing with the media again, this time revoking press credentials from the Washington Post. He pacified rebellions from his younger and increasingly more ideological staff. Washington, the Washington Post firing a reporter by the name of Felicia Sanmez after her week-long Twitter feud with the paper. That and he partnered with Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos to take on arguably the biggest disruptor of all. Technology. The, the financial situation of the Washington Post at that time, this is 2013, was very upside down. The problem was a, a secular one. The internet was just eroding all of the traditional advantages that local newspapers had. All He's them, written about all of this and a lot more in his new book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. Today, Marty's joining the show to spill the tea on what actually happened between Bezos and Trump, what the media should be doing to earn your trust, and whether billionaires like Jeff Bezos are secretly pulling the strings behind closed doors. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Marty Barron is the type of person who few recognize but a lot know about. Prior to leading the Washington Post, he was the editor of the Boston Globe, where he oversaw the investigation into one of the biggest stories in American journalism, the Catholic Church's systemic cover-up of sexual abuse. The Globe's reporting on that scandal was immortalized in the Oscar-winning film Spotlight. It was neither his first nor his last big story. Throughout his career, Marty has held senior roles at many of America's most prestigious publications, the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Miami Herald, where he led the newsroom through the Bush v. Gore recount and the Elian Gonzalez saga. But that was just a warm-up act for what awaited him when he took control of the Post in 2013, during what was arguably the publication's all-time low since being bought out of bankruptcy in the 1930s. We didn't have any new ideas. We had a bunch of old ideas that weren't working. We kept trying those old ideas, and they produced the same results, amazingly. What happened in those years is the main narrative of his excellent new book, which contains a lot of lessons for anyone trying to understand the convulsions that have ripped through politics, the media, and big tech in the last decade. I caught up with Marty in the lobby of the Ritz-Carlton Central Park, to find out what really went on behind closed doors at the Washington Post during the Trump years. Whenever you're ready. We started with how and why he and Bezos picked that Post slogan, democracy dies in darkness. Do you regret the democracy dies in, in darkness? No, it's been hugely successful. I yeah. mean, everybody knows it. I mean, it's, is there anybody who doesn't know that phrase? I mean, yeah. it's unlike, you know, a lot of companies come up with the mottos, particularly newspapers, and... You, you see them and you yawn. I mean, it's like, okay, they're eminently forgettable, right? So what If you the don't Post had one previously, I don't remember what it was. Never had one, But of no. course we know uh, what the they Times had, is. They had a line on their editorial page that said an independent newspaper, but that's it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the New York Times for many years had uh, all the news that's fit to print. It's a little out of date Does these the days. Does the Times not have to They don't have it anymore. I don't uh, think I knew that. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So, um, of course, 
you don't have to fit into anything anymore on the internet, right? So right, so it was, it was literally a, 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 yeah, right. So it was all the news that's fit to print. So, yeah. um, and it was very famous, and everybody knew it. And um, but uh, Bezos wanted us to have one, and he wanted us to have one that, um, you know, he said at the beginning, "Don't be afraid of the word democracy." And um, and so uh, we toyed with that, and we toyed with a lot of things. And we, you know, I was I was hesitant because you know who has death and darkness in their motto, uh, really? Right, right. That's uh, the. I mean, seems like it's bad a bad marketing, right? So uh, it seems like like uh, rule rule number one: don't have death and darkness in your motto. But um, but we did, and uh, we tried light. You know, we tried using light, but it sounded self-aggrandizing, and it sounded like a cult, um, and so it didn't work. Did you worry, because, I mean, so much of your, and we're gonna, I want to talk about this next, it's so much of your legacy will be standing up for very traditional newsroom values in very, very difficult circumstances with, with Trump as president. Your famous line, we are not at war, we are, we are at work, with which you write that Fred Ryan eventually put over the national desk in, 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 the, in the newsroom. Um, but did you worry, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but one of the criticisms of the Democracy Dies in Darkness was that it identified the post with, um, you know, the hashtag resistance, that the post was taking this oppositional, uh, I mean, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with the newspaper taking an oppositional uh, uh, perspective to, a, to an administration, but that it, it, it's, it um, people argue it was anti-Trump, essentially, which maybe yeah. may suggest what their views of Trump are, but... Well, look, I mean, I know that Trump and his supporters will never accept the fact, uh, and it is a fact, that it had nothing to do with Donald Trump. We started this process two years before he took office. It took us two years to come up with something, uh, and finally we came to something. Two years? <laughs> we came up with something, because all of us were just sick of the subject. But, um, <laughs> but um, um, you know, it was implemented after Trump took office, so people interpreted it that way. Um, and look, when, when Trump um, was defeated and when he left the White House— uh, uh, we weren't sure that he was going to, but he did uh, leave the White House. Uh, he, uh, there were many uh, readers who sent us notes saying, well, okay, now you can take this off. Uh, well, we didn't take that off. I mean, of course we weren't going to take that off. It had nothing to do with Donald Trump. It had to do with a principle um, and the idea that the, that the press and the Post in particular should shed a light in dark corners, should hold government to account, and, um, and uh, that the government needs to be as transparent as possible. One of the things that you've watched up close in your career running these newsrooms is um, what, what looks to me like a pretty stark generational divide in our business. And you dealt with some really high-profile cases of younger journalists who um, were doing things a little bit differently in, in, in the newsroom. Um, you write very candidly about some of the, some of these episodes in the book with uh, Wes Lowry, who, full disclosure, is a, a friend of mine, um, with Felicia Somnes, um, David Weigel. Um, but in general, this sort of uh, value, this clash of values between, um, you know, frankly, it looks like more millennial Gen X, excuse me, millennial and Gen Z. I think some of the Gen Zers are old enough to be reporters now and people of your generation. How old are you? Six, I'll be 69 and, uh, later this month. So let's get into that a little bit because in this book, some of your most personal reflections are on that subject. You mount a very um, cogent defense for traditional values and especially the singular journalistic value of objectivity. And so tell us a little bit about that generational divide, which manifested as this ideological divide. What's the sure. debate there? 
Well, you know, it wasn't in the journalism itself. Uh, yeah. You know, for example, with Wes, I, I talk extensively in the book about what a f- terrific journalist he is. I mean, he's uh, incredibly Absolutely. energetic, uh, talented, savvy about te- technology and the use of uh, technology, uh, courageous. Uh, the work that he did in Ferguson was fantastic. He brought incredible honor on, on the post and on himself with the work that he did. Um, in covering uh, police shootings. It was his idea. It won a Pulitzer. Um, and, um, and I talk about that extensively, and I, Absolutely. I genuinely believe that. And I was uh, sorry to see him leave the post. Um, he was a real, a real talent, an exceptional talent. And he left and on his own. He left on his own. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, but we really disagreed about uh, social media behavior. And that's where the problem is. With, uh, it comes up with all of the people you mentioned. Yep. Is I wanted people to stick to the journalism. I think journalism can be exceptionally powerful, uh, well-researched, rigorously reported, fairly written, uh, open-minded, clear, and uh, unflinching work is what I was looking for. You know, we didn't really bring people on board in order to express their opinions. That's the people who were brought on board to express their opinions. They worked in the opinion department, and uh, that's uh, traditionally where people have expressed them. I didn't really want people going on uh, social media to share all of their views about whatever they chose to speak on that day without any editing whatsoever. I mean, look, we took incredible care. We tried to take incredible care with what we published in the Post. Uh, and to have uh, people just impulsively expressing their views and feelings and thoughts and uh, all of that on social media, um, instantaneously, impulsively, and at times, I thought, recklessly, it didn't help the Post. I think it undermined our image, our credibility, the identity that we wanted for ourselves as people were sort of expressing their own identity on social media. We had an identity for the Post that we wanted to maintain and that I was responsible for protecting, by the way. That was my job. And by the way, our standards were written down. Uh, people were given copies of we them had at a the beginning. Media policy, yeah. We had a social media policy. And, um, and I think they, were, they may not have been the best written, but they were sufficiently clear. I mean, sometimes this issue is described as, um, you know, the institution versus the stars, right? That journalists today believe and their institutions sometimes profit from them having high profiles and sometimes their own um, reputations outshining their institution. I know you're very familiar with that debate. How did you grapple with that? Well, look, I mean, I, I, I said this fairly recently to a group of young journalists. Uh, they talk about developing their own brand and all yeah. of that. And, what do you think of when you, when you hear actually, that? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of them are actually taught in journalism schools that they need to develop Columbia their own Columbia teaches this. Yeah, and yeah. I know exactly why they do, and I understand that totally. Is look, they feel the institutions aren't necessarily going to be loyal to them, so they need to have an identity of their own. Yeah. Okay, I get that. But what I said to them is that um, that's fine, except that when they join an organization, they need to make sure that the brand that they hope to cultivate is not in conflict with the brand that, of the institution they hope to join, and if they expect to stay there. I think that uh, the institutions need to think that through. You shouldn't bring on board pe- people who are going to cultivate a brand that you find it undermines the brand of the institution. And people who join these institutions, so, you know, journalists, should recognize that the brand they're trying to cultivate might not be consistent with the brand that is of the institution that employs them. And that's a recipe for disaster. So I think both the institution and the individual need to think that through before they agree to work with each other. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, what if you have someone says, well, I don't know, look at look at Bob Woodward. That's someone with a big brand, and the Washington Post, um, as you point out in the book, I think a lot of people don't know this. He doesn't work at the Post, but he has an honorific title of associate yes. editor. So a lot of people think he's still sort of on staff. Yeah. But if he's got a scoop, I, I imagine he you know usually gets published by the Post. 
Well, you but, know, but places that, like Fox always just put the word editor of the Washington Post when he's up there as if he were the editor, should, the editor you of You express some frustration Post. in the book about this. A little well, bit. It, you know, it came through I mean, a little bit. Yeah, okay. Do you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> Is it, was, it, was it annoying because he's out there writing these scoopy books and then all of a sudden they're, he's taken as like, he's you, your job, he's the, yeah. he's the actual editor and people well, don't know the difference? Yeah, well, I, I, he should write all the Scoopy books he wants. More power to him, you know. Uh, fantastic, and he's a he's a great reporter. Um, um, you know, I mean, was he a little looser in the commentary that I that I would want uh, for somebody on our staff? Uh, yeah, um, and um, and was it? Uh, you know, did it work really well when he was described as the editor? It looked like he was the editor of the Washington Post. His people thought that he was speaking for the Washington Post. And in truth, Bob was speaking for himself. And I think he would say the same. So this rule goes for the young 20-something reporter uh, as well, much as it goes... Well, they actually do work for the Washington Post. That's the difference. And, and their Twitter accounts, they are identified with the Washington Post. And the reason that they have a following is because they work for the Washington Post. If they didn't work for That's the Washington Post... That's not always Post, true, though. Not what about, true, what about when you hire fun. someone who's got a massive following and you, because you write in the book about how you were trying to find some more online. Well, we weren't trying to find people who were just had a massive following. We were trying to find people who were savvy about the use of social media. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But some of those, um, I think it's a chicken and egg thing here between newspaper uh, management it is. And, 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 and independent journalists with, with brands, sometimes they bring those followings to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, but nobody I found myself in conflict with that we hired, actually had a brand, had developed a brand that was already in conflict with the Post. I mean, yeah. Dave Weigel had had a previous controversy, but yeah. he purported to be uh, cured of whatever controversies had erupted. So we weren't looking for people who had a huge uh, following and had a brand that was in conflict with the Post. If they had had a brand in conflict with the Post, um, at the time we hired them, we almost certainly wouldn't have hired them. What I was so struck by in the book is how serious an issue this was for you and how that friction with some of these reporters, and a lot of it spilled out into public because a lot of them were tweeting about it. You, you write that it was, there was a, a meeting about social media and you said, I'd never felt more distant from my fellow journalists. The staff's feelings about social media to me valued individual expression over the interests of the institution. The emphasis was on I, me, my, not we, us, our. The whole thing was depressing and I was more convinced than ever that this was a good time to leave daily journalism. It, but it really sort of started your process of retiring. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it mainly because I was getting into retirement age and I was yeah. tired and I'd been in the top editor for 20 years and I'd been at the Post for a good number of years also. Uh, so I was, you know, thinking about it already, uh, of course. I mean, it's, just, it's an exhausting job. It's not just 24-7, it's 24-7 every minute uh, yeah. these days, given the digital environment we live in. But yeah, it was a very troubling issue for me. I just totally disagreed with the position of a number of people, on the, of a large number of people on the staff. There was an uprising against me. There was a petition signed by hundreds of Post journalists taking me to task for the enforcements of the social media guidelines that, in my view, they had all agreed to when they were when they came on board, and that I didn't think were confusing at all, that most people actually abided by, and the vast majority of people abided by, but they seemed to not want uh, enforcement of those guidelines. And, you know, in my view is if you have guidelines and you tell the public you have these guidelines and you don't enforce the guidelines, A, number one, you've rendered the guidelines meaningless, yeah. and number two, you're lying to the public. You're telling them that you actually have standards when, in fact, you don't enforce those standards. Uh, you don't insist on those. Those are just standards in name only. 
If we don't have any standards, then maybe we should just tell the public we have no standards. But let's not pretend that we do have standards by putting out guidelines, pointing people to those standards, and then we actually don't enforce those standards. Do you think this is sort of the new normal for people in your uh, kind of uh, role in terms of newsrooms being, um, you know, these kinds of fights spilling out into the public? And it's not even a union management thing anymore because a lot of the times it's outside the, the, yeah. that, that relationship. I mean, I guess my question is, have these institutions become ungovernable and they're, they're just going to be defined by a series of, of mini uprisings by the, the well, newer staffers. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that they're ungovernable, but I would say that I didn't want to govern one. <laughs> so uh, that maybe they were ungovernable for me or what it would take to actually govern it was not exactly how I wanted to spend my time, uh, yeah. my life at that stage of my career. Yeah. Um, I really didn't want to have to fight with people on the staff constantly every time we enforce guidelines. I did think that if we had standards that we should make sure that they were real and honest and that we actually did apply them, but I didn't want to be in constant fights with people over this stuff, and I really did disagree. Uh, and I felt that it was undermining our the reputation of the post, and it had done us significant damage. So I think it's harder to govern newsrooms these days, yeah. <clears throat> for sure. I hear that from every editor I talk to, and I know most of them. In the- well, that's why I want to so, ask you: Is this something? I mean, you write about the the meetings you had with the leadership of the New York Times and Bezos, just to, to sort of build a. A kind of pact if, in case Trump came after you. Just to follow up on your, what you're saying, is this something that consumes a lot of the conversations among newsroom leaders these days? Uh, yeah, I think it does. Uh, I hear about it from a lot of people. I hear about it from people who say, I'm so glad you're talking about this. Well, and I say, well, it would be uh, really great to have some company. Maybe you'd like to speak about it, too. And they're like, like you- oh, God, I don't want to get my staff all upset. I don't want to work get them all worked up. And so then they just say, but keep talking about it. Uh, great. Well, thank you. Here I am talking about it yet again. Do you think it was harder on you because you have one of the best reputations in journalism? Was it hard for you to then see these little episodes suddenly be what most people were hearing about you? Is that the yeah, frustration? I would say that, yeah. I mean, I was worried first and foremost about what it did to the reputation of the Post, but I was worried also that uh, my own reputation was being unfairly tarnished uh, because of all this. Um, and because, look, the Post had standards, and so people should follow those standards. I followed those standards, and a lot of other people followed those standards, and they didn't have any problem doing so. And they were, many of those people were doing highly impactful journalism, uh, some of the most impactful journalism we did at the Post. Um, and that was true at the Post and in many other institutions. So, um, so yeah, there was just a big disagreement. And, I, and my, um, my view was that, um, you know, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. It's not how I want to spend the rest of my life. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What was your first uh, reaction to Bezos? I mean, you and I have both been around uh, media businesses that are owned by wealthy benefactors. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not. It's a not so good thing. Um, yeah, I was at the New Republic when Marty Parrots was floating that. 
at Politico when the, the Alberton family owned it. And there are issues that come up with billionaire sure. owners. So what was your first reaction? I wouldn't use the word benefactor. I certainly wasn't thinking that he would be a benefactor per se. So I, my image of him, uh, based on what I'd read over the years... Uh, Oh, in other words, he, was he, was, he wasn't going to be someone who was just going to like float losses. He wasn't going to treat it like a charity. Right, right, I was quite right. sure that he wouldn't treat it like a charity. Right. So he the TNR model a, is not the, <laughs> is not the right model. Right, exactly. So um, I was pretty sure he wasn't going to treat it like a charity, that he would treat it like a business, the way that he's handled everything else. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I thought, I wasn't sure I was going to survive. I mean, a new owner probably gets a new editor, right? Uh, that's usually the case. I was pretty hopeful. I mean, I, I thought, uh, here's a guy who doesn't want to manage decline. That's not his history. Uh, that he would want to grow the post. That he had full knowledge of technology. I mean, really impressive knowledge of technology. And importantly, and something that people forget, is knowledge of consumer behavior, which is really important for our business. And that he would come with some new ideas because God knows we didn't have any new ideas. We had a bunch of old ideas that weren't working. We kept trying those old ideas and they produced the same results amazingly. So I was hopeful that he would come in with some new ideas. So my view was that it would be good for the post, but I didn't know if it was going to be good for me personally. Um, and uh, Did you feel like you had to prove yourself all over again? Oh, yeah. And I've had to do that on multiple occasions in my career is prove myself. I mean, look, when I went to the New York Times, um, the first time in 1996, I had had a long career. I had worked at the Los Angeles Times for 17 years, and you went into the New York Times, and they assumed that you haven't worked anywhere before you got there. And I was going in at a senior level. So yet I had to prove myself there, and then I had to prove myself when I went into Miami, which I had been a reporter there, but I hadn't been back in 20 years. And then I went up to Boston where, um, you know, I wasn't from Boston, you know, didn't go to school there, uh, hardly knew the place. Uh, and you can be sure that I needed to prove myself in a place like Boston. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, they love outsiders in Boston. Yeah, right. <laughs> outsiders. I was called an outsider, in fact. I, you know, uh, I used to tell people in other towns, I, uh, people called me a newcomer, but here in Boston, they called me an outsider. So it tells you a lot. Yeah. In any event. Um, uh, so, yeah, I knew I was going to have to prove myself. I figured that he would be demanding. Um, he would have new ideas. I'd have to, we'd have to implement them. I didn't know to what degree he would be receptive to our own ideas uh, or to being contradicted, by the way, uh, if we felt that the, his ideas were wrong. And so, yeah, I knew I was for an, in for a period of, um, of proving myself for sure. I thought it was interesting. I mean, the book in general is... Um paints quite a favorable impression of Bezos as a newspaper owner. You know, I think you're very honest about some of his flaws, and you take readers through some of your, your disagreements. But overall, your impression of, of him in the book is this has been good for the Post, and he didn't cross any of the red lines that we as journalists would be worried about for an owner like Bezos, who has so many issues before the government and potential conflicts. Early on, when uh, Bart Gelman brings you the Snowden story, you, you write about how Bezos was curious about the process by which national security secrets are vetted and how seriously you take the government's view that they shouldn't be published. And I think you, you write that he wanted, Bezos suggested maybe codifying the, those rules of the Post, which seems eminently reasonable. And you say that he passed an important test. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Well, ju just for clarification, uh, we did the Snowden um, uh, documents a story before Bezos. It was before Bezos, excuse uh, me. Acquired uh, the Post. So, um, 
Uh, so that was actually a concern of mine when Bezos acquired it, is how would he have reacted if we had come to him with a story like that? Uh, that story, of course, provoked an enormous amount of reaction. Some people felt like we had done the right thing in disclosing this, uh, this extensive surveillance. I mean, serious people um, were arguing you should be in jail. Right, but people, people were saying, including people in the intelligence community and in Congress, were saying that uh, people like me should have been imprisoned for, for Alexander our publication was, uh, of that. Keith Alexander. Keith Alexander, excuse yeah, me. Keith Alexander said that, and uh, who, by the way, is now on the Amazon board. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, I'm sure you loved uh, that when you saw that. Yeah, it was so exciting. Uh, so um, they didn't ask for my opinion, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he suggested a raid on Bart Gelman's uh, house. You know, Bart was the one who came to us with the Snowden documents. In any event, uh, so when Bezos came, the first actually substantive meeting we had really um, about newsroom policy issues was uh, on how we handle national security information. And I was on my on guard because I thought, what is right. he going to say about that? So, you know, we came to him. Uh, I was there. The publisher was there. The, the Our lawyers were there. We explained what is the rationale that we use, why we do this, of course. Um, what are the uh, kind of gates we have to go through um, to publish something um, and what our procedures are. And, um, you know, he thought this was all reasonable. Um, we uh, decided to codify, yes, he suggested we put it down in writing, uh, which we had not done that. Um, and so we did put it down in writing and, um, and he was presented with it and I never heard another word. Um, let's go through some of the, the debates you had with him and see if we can sort of understand what he's like as, as an owner. Tell us about the 15-minute uh, metric fight. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know, he, he this is early. This was, is early years. It was embedded in that as one good idea and one bad idea. <laughs> one good idea is that we should have an overnight crew that's really responding to what's happening out there. Doing the a morning newsletter. Yeah, I love well, morning newsletters. They're great. Well, the morning newsletters are separate from that, but but this was an <laughs> overnight crew that was actually to kind of respond to the to the news. Okay. Um, that happened uh, in the off hours. We really didn't have a lot of people working overnight or anybody working overnight, yeah. so we would often be late on stories. And, um, you know, he was drawing inspiration, if you can call it that, from other places like Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and, and uh, Business Insider and places like that. And um, so he suggested that we have an overnight crew and that they should be able to turn around stories uh, every 15 minutes and we should be measured on that. Um, this didn't appeal to me. It sounds uh, like the Amazon all, factory view of journalism. Well, yeah, and the idea of getting high-quality journalists of any quality to work uh, overnight shift, um, you know, from essentially 10 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning, um, and then turn around stories every 15 minutes. Well, who in the world am I going to get to do that uh, of any caliber? Yeah. Uh, who wants that kind of a job? Nobody, really. So, um, so you know, we worked with that. Um, fortunately, we hired a really good uh, editor, Fred Barbash, an experienced uh, Washington Post uh, editor who had moved on elsewhere but was willing to come back. Fortunately, he's an insomniac, so staying <laughs> up at night was really good for him. It was fine with him. He had no problem with that whatsoever because he was always up anyway. And, um, and uh, his idea, which was really smart, was... Um, uh, why don't we just do second-day stories today? The idea of looking ahead, what's the story that people are going to want to know yeah. tomorrow or the next day or something like that, and let's try to do them tonight. And, um, and he was a great, uh, great editor for that, and uh, that was exactly the right idea. Uh, the way to get, How did you uh, kill a 15-minute metric, though? This is well, great management. This is great it. managing managing up yeah. advice for for newsroom I, leaders out there. What do you what do you do when the do boss it. brings we, a d- dumb we, idea? We just didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> as simple as that. So, but he, my uh, hope but is he remembered, we, didn't he? 
He did remember, and it came back to me again when, uh, with a new publisher, Fred Ryan, and he brought it up, and I told him I'm just simply not going to do that. What we're already doing is working extremely well, um, and we're producing tremendous traffic. It was disproportionate to the size of the staff that was working on it. Uh, the stories were often the most read stories uh, on our site. Uh, so there wasn't a problem to solve, and that's the point that I made. And I was, certainly wasn't going to solve it by uh, I, I guess the, the, imposing that metric, which actually yeah. would have hurt us. It's easy to produce stories. It's much harder to produce stories that people will read. Yeah, that's a good point. And he would, but he, and that's, a, that's an argument that he would uh, probably respond to. Yeah, and I mean, he accepted that. He told you he, he wants the post to be, not to be boring, right? The biggest thing, his biggest thing was don't be boring. That was one of his boring. first pieces of advice was don't be boring. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I tried to Did take you take that, that personally? And, and, uh, I like, oh, is it boring now? I didn't think it personally, uh, but I think that he found a lot of what he read to be boring. I mean, not yeah. just in the Post, but elsewhere. Um, I did take it into account when I was writing my book, actually. I didn't want to be boring. So um, <laughs> I thought, you know, I don't want him to say that it was boring. I mean, he may not like the book or whatever, but... but it's not boring. I don't want him to, the thing is, I don't want him to argue that it's boring. So did Not to jump around too much, but we're recording this on Tuesday. The book's out today. Has he read it? Did I you, have no idea. Did you send it to him? Yeah, I sent a, we sent a PDF, the publisher sent a PDF to Patty Stonecipher, who's the current CEO. Yeah, yeah. Michael Kinsley's uh, wife. With uh, permission, of course, to share it with him and with um, uh, Sally Busby, the editor, and their, the head of PR. You know, I thought it was only fair for them to have an opportunity to read it uh, before it comes out so that they could prepare any responses that they would like to prepare. Did you get any feedback from either no. the post or him? No, none, zero. And I, you know, he, he has this phrase, strategic silence, and I assume that he's maintaining that. But your relationship, you, your relationship, you ended, when you retired, your relationship was not strained with him? No, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, it was very good, very yeah. solid. Um, he called to thank me for what I had done for the Post, which was very nice. And um, uh, so, no, we had a, we had a, very, good, uh, a very good relationship. I, I actually wish that he had spent more time at Post uh, in my last couple of years there. I think that would have been helpful. Right, you, want, you wanted him to be more engaged. Usually when you're writing about him, it was not that you were wishing for lack of engagement. You were trying to get him engaged yeah. and get meetings. Let's talk about that a little bit. I wonder if just in general, if you have some sort of advice for editorial leaders who have to manage these high-powered business owners. I think one of the lessons of the Chris Licht era at CNN is that he never won over the favor of the CNN core because they saw him as, whether this is fair or not, I I don't know the reality, but they saw him as a tool of the corporate owner. I mean, that's a harsh harsh way of saying it, but I think that was a a widespread view among the editorial employees at CNN, whereas Jeff Zucker famously was seen as protecting them, protecting them. I'm sure you were placed in similar situations, and I'm just wondering how you grapple with that as a newsroom leader, especially when we're in an era now where it's likely to be more ownership models like this. Sure. Um, Well, you know, my view is that I'm always willing to be fired. uh, (laughs) You go into it with that attitude, yeah. Yeah, I do go in with that attitude. Look, these are high-risk jobs. I mean, people shouldn't, you know, be under the illusion that somehow these are secure jobs. They're probably the least secure jobs in a newsroom. So, um, and you see that with a lot of people being dismissed or having lost their jobs, particularly with with an industry that's in turmoil as our industry has been. So, you know, I go in with the idea that, 
okay, well, he may fire me, first of all. Uh, I don't go in with the idea of trying to get him to fire me, yeah. uh, but I, I go in with the idea that I need to be honest uh, with him or whoever, um, that, I, that, I, that they should value me based on the experience that I have and the record that I have. Um, and so I try to tell them what I think is reasonable for us to do and what I think is unreasonable f- uh, for us to do. And... Um, and you hope, you just hope that these folks are reasonable people. I mean, if they're not a reasonable person, there's just no way you're going to survive. Uh, but if they are willing to listen to reason, if they're willing to listen to logic, and, and, and you back it up with data, which for Bezos, that's really important to be able to you know, make a, a sound logical argument and that you have data, he's receptive to that. So I think you have to be willing to you know, disagree at times. Uh, you do it in a civil way. Uh, but um, but uh, you should do it. But other times, when they actually have reasonable suggestions for how you might change the way you do things, you know, you should take that seriously and you should try to imp- do your best to try to implement it. So with some of Bezos' ideas that, you know, okay, the overnight crew, which we talked about, uh, it's like, okay, how do we work with that idea and make it successful? Yeah. Um, as opposed to just saying, no, we're not going to do that. What were some of the things where you were heartened by his engagement and you thought he really gets it and this is going to make the post better? Uh, well, his view of investigative reporting really hardened me. Um, he was really committed to it. I mean, he was asked at a town hall meeting, uh, you know, about metrics and um, and how we should implement metrics and that sort of thing. And he made a point of saying that there's sometimes metrics don't work. And the example that he provided was investigative reporting, is that, uh, you know, you could have somebody saying these things just don't pencil out. They require an enormous amount of time. They require an enormous amount of money and resources of every type. Yep. Uh, and we don't get the traffic that we need out of them. But he said that, you know, if we were to stop doing that in 20 years, we would really regret it because that's who we are. And he, his statement was that principles trump metrics. Yeah. Uh, and that was a really important statement. Uh, it's that he recognized that we have core principles and that those principles have to be maintained um, and that that was part of our identity. I mean, keep in mind, um, core to the Post's identity uh, was Watergate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, the work that the Post did then, uh, we were known as an institution that held power to account. Uh, we had to continue to be seen as that. Um, and uh, we From a financial perspective as well. I mean, it seems like he understood those principles mattered financially. I think the important thing is that he um, he understood, and this came into play when we came up with our so-called mo- our motto, or whatever he preferred to call a mission statement, um, was um, um, that um, that we have a relationship with readers. It's different from a product. It's not just a product. He said that when we were talk- coming up with Democracy Dies in Darkness, he said uh, this needs to be an idea that people want to belong to, not a newspaper that people want to subscribe to. And I think that's a really important uh, point. And the core point there is that this is a relationship that we have with people. It's not just a product we're trying to sell to people. And people have to buy into that relationship. They have to feel that we're faithful to that relationship and, um, and, uh, and doing investigative reporting, holding power to account, was evidence of our uh, keeping faith. Uh, with that that core principle of the post, going back to Watergate and even before then. One thing I want to go back, we've got to talk about Trump, obviously. Uh, there's a moment when Trump is elected, and suddenly you've got a whole new basket of issues uh, to worry about in your relationship with Bezos, because Trump's going after Bezos. We don't have to get into the whole litany of attacks on you personally and all of your reporters. Our, our listeners are, well, are very familiar with Trump just denigrating you guys and, and all of us in the press at, at every turn. There's this one moment in the book, though, I did want to ask you about where I wanted you to help us understand Bezos's thinking about 
when you have as much money as he does and have has as many companies with important business before the government and has an army of lobbyists in, in, in D.C., I'm sure you were concerned about how that would affect his ownership. There's a moment when he goes to Fred Hyatt, the editorial page editor, and suggests, you know, when there are points, and correct me if I'm getting this uh, wrong, when there are points... You're talking about Bezos here? Or are you talking about... Bezos, okay. yeah. A few days before Trump sworn in, you write that he talked oh, yeah. to, to Fred and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, when there are points of commonality and agreement between the editorial board and the Trump administration, and I think the phrasing here is very important, is how he phrased it, but essentially he says, we should... We, why don't we write about this? I don't know if it was a question or a, we, or a command. But to me, that was a moment. It was like, all right, this is a moment, another testing moment. This is Bezos going to the editorial board of his newspaper. So far in this book, by that point, he has been not intervening editorially. You've said he never, essentially he never did. But that's a point where maybe he went a step further. But to tell yeah, us your view well, on that. Uh, sure. Uh, and well, I don't, keep the in editorials mind. are different, of course. Yeah, well, that's a point that I was just going to make, is that the that's the editorial page. Um, I had nothing to do with the editorial page. I oversaw our news coverage, and Fred Hyatt oversaw the editorial page. Yeah. And that's where you express opinions, and certainly readers, the public, interprets that as a reflection of maybe the opinions of the owner. Absolutely. Uh, but for the most are, part, yeah. and a lot of owners are deeply involved yeah. in those uh, editorials. Jeff wasn't super involved in that. I mean, it was very general, you know, are they on the same general wavelength, that sort of thing. So, I mean, I heard about it from Fred Hyatt because he was worried that now that Trump was president that Jeff might be weakening uh, because now Trump would actually have real and consequential power. And so, uh, do I think that what Jeff said is unreasonable? I don't think it's unreasonable. I mean, I think that if you do find points of agreement, then, you know, I think that it's uh, fair to say, well, we should point those out that it should, we shouldn't be necessarily just do the resistance that we should only yeah. do the criticism without the criticism actually should have carry more weight if you show that there are other things where you actually agree that's true uh, if all it, if if all you if it only appears that you're just criticizing then people are going to dismiss that criticism as just being reflexive and ideological yeah. and all of that but if you do in fact point out areas of agreement then uh, your criticism should under normal circumstances, carry more weight. Sure. And I think Fred was known for being more than other, quote-unquote, liberal editorial uh, boards, was known for looking for points of agreement with people to he the did. right. And, and that right? was pretty, a lot of, and by, a lot of and liberal the way, didn't and, like that. Yeah. And by the way, I think that was not inconsistent with the way that Don Graham ran the uh, editorial page either. I mean, I think that's what he... Did he weigh in? I don't, I don't no, know the history. No, no. Not that I know of, but... Uh, yeah. Not that I'm aware of, but... Uh, so but, it been but I think that's the way Don... I mean, weigh in on the editorial board? Yeah, would, like ideologically. I, I, honestly, I don't know. I wasn't yeah. there, but yeah. uh, my guess is, you know, that he had conversations with Fred. The rules are different, though, I guess. Don's what... general view is, look, we should argue when we do agree. We should say that we agree, but when we disagree, we should say we disagree. Yeah. But Don was, um, he wanted the Post to be scrupulously fair. Um, yeah. That is a core principle of his. Um, and, um, you know, he made that clear to me over the course of my time there, and I don't disagree with him on that. I want to wrap up with two two last things. The, the first, or maybe three, are you still really mad about Ben Smith for how he covered this issue? You described one of his pieces as defamatory. 
Yeah, well, it was. Uh, so it was. I mean, it, it unfairly cast the post as if it was sort of a cesspool of uh, discrimination and racism and all that. And while I don't doubt that there's been discrimination at the Post in certain instances and that uh, we haven't always been as sensitive as we should be or personally that I maybe didn't do enough in terms of making sure there was diversity in leadership in particular uh, or in our coverage or what have you, I accept all of those criticisms. And uh, But uh, to have the, the Post described as some sort of cesspool of racism is just preposterous and untrue. And, uh, and, and so I... I Am I angry? Am I mad about it? I'm not mad about it at the moment. I was mad about it at the time, but I'm not mad about it today. I just feel that uh, it was an unfair characterization, and I thought I'd point that out. The reason that came to mind is that one of the most interesting things you advise at the end of the book, I find this interesting because I've personally been on the receiving end of a defamation lawsuit that's been going on for years now, and you recommend that newsrooms should beef up their, their legal staffs, not just to defend ourselves from all this litigation, but to strike back that if someone uh, says something defamatory about us as a journalist, um, maybe we sue, which I think I was always raised in the frame of mind that defamation lawsuits are anti-First Amendment to begin with, and no media organization should be engaged in that kind of litigation from the plaintiff side. But you got me to sort of rethink this a little bit with your argument, and I wonder if you could just talk about it a little bit. Sure. I mean, look, I was raised with the same idea that you were, uh, is that uh, we don't like defamation suits, libel suits. Uh, we, we don't do them ourselves. Uh, we don't bring them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we defend aggressively against them. And we should defend aggressively against them. But the reality is that we in the press have become a primary target of uh, defamation. Um, and, um, and I don't want us to be sitting ducks. Uh, I think it's, I, I'm tired of being a sitting duck. Um, and I think that uh, we should, on occasion, uh, bring a libel suit. Uh, the fact is, those are the laws. Uh, why shouldn't we take advantage? Other people are going to exploit those laws to try to intimidate us and, and, and inflict severe damage on us, financial damage and reputational damage. Then, um, you know, we have the right to, to defend our reputations. And uh, then... Fine. And if, and, and if people like Ron DeSantis want to make uh, defamation victories easier, well, fine. Let's, why don't we use that to our, our benefit? You know who objected the most to uh, Ron DeSantis' uh, proposals or the Republicans' proposals in Florida? It was the right-wing media. They were the most concerned about it. They were the most concerned about it because they engage in the greatest amount of de- defamation. And, and much of their defamation is directed at other people in the press. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, look, if that's the system they're going to create, then let's use it to our advantage and show them that there's a price to be paid for this kind of behavior. Interesting. I mean, I think the First Amendment bar might respond with the risk of escalation on defamation lawsuits is creating bad law that could come back and haunt us. Yeah, well, it's already been escalated. So, And we have a former president who hopes to be president again who argues that it should be escalated even further. So yeah. that's what we're dealing with. That's the real world that we're living in. I would like that not to be the case, uh, but it is the case, and it might get worse. Uh, I don't think we should sit here. I think we should reevaluate our position on this. Marty, thank you so much for doing this. The book is great. Anyone who listens to this podcast will want to buy it and read it. And I learned a ton, and you've had an incredible career. I've always really admired your work, and it's a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Thanks, thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate it. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thank you to Ula Kulpa for field production in New York. 
Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.